This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Welcome. Tom, big question for you. Have you been to the pub yet? Gee, I have been to the pub. I even went to the pub on my bike. I got to use my pub bike for the first time in a long time. My pub bike is its the bike I used to commute to work on when I lived in London. So it's a single speed steel bike, sturdy. Nothing really can go wrong with it. If you bump it into a few things, that's fine. So yeah, it was great to be in the pub. It was great to dust off the pub bike. Lovely. I'm jealous because... Uh... Even if I wanted to, I couldn't really go at the minute anyway. But maybe in August, hopefully all being well, you know, the old discotheques yeah. and everything's going to be open. It's going to be right Larry. <laughs> it's nice to hear the word <laughs> discotheque in full. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, you know, I'd go all Euro on you. Yeah. So you're back home in Wales having a few days off, aren't you? What are you actually allowed to do on a day off? Yeah, so basically a bit of a mid-season break. I say that, it's only like four or five days. But basically it's just spending some time with the family is the main thing because... Had a period earlier in the year where I, had, I was away for 11 weeks. Well, in those 11 weeks, I saw Sarah Max for four days. So that was kind of that's a Brexit. Hard. Yeah, that was, it was, that's not usual. That was thanks to sort of Brexit and COVID and, you know, yeah, a bit of a double whammy there. But um, yeah, it's just chilling out basically and just enjoying not being super tired. But then one and a half year old running around so I'm sure I'm going to be just as tired anyway but um it's just nice to spend some time with them switch off you know mentally as well and and just you know have the odd burger or whatever and but unfortunately not too many beers but I find like when you have a little few days like that you you can be super on it again when the time comes and all the way through to the tour then so sounds good should we get on with the show right Tom so it's my turn to choose the subject this week and thinking of turns I chose Team Pursuit which is where obviously I started my career basically Ah nice so we're going right back to the start of your professional career aren't we really Beijing in the Laochelle Velodrome that was a crazy place to be and then London did you when you won gold was that one of the Paul McCartney nights or did he save that for the women's team pursuit he seemed to be singing in every stadium you went to that summer Oh, did it? I have absolutely no idea, actually. So if you were there, Sir Paul, sorry, but... Um, he did Hey Jude. Or he sang along no to idea. it. He's not singing it live, but they're playing it over the PA. Oh, are they? And he was giving it, yeah, and he was giving it the Mac a thumbs up and waving a few flags. Yeah, same answer still. Absolutely no idea. But <laughs> yeah, nothing against Sir Paul. You know, when you're on it, you're on it, aren't you? In the zone. Well, it's an Olympic final, to be fair. The thing that always strikes me about the team pursuit is... Maybe a bit like the Coxless Four uh, at the rowing at the Olympics. When it's done well, it just it looks easy. But you're watching it thinking, there's nothing easy about this. Yeah, so basically Team Pursuit is four kilometre time trial, 16 laps of the track for four men or four women. And yeah, from A to B as quick as you can go. The time is taken on the third person. So yeah, you only need three to finish. But yeah, like you say, Tom, it's... Uh, Oh, it's beautiful to watch. You know, you all take your turn on the front, you swing up the track in a nice arc, you come back down on the back. And it looks beautiful when it's almost easier when the quicker you go. 
But yeah, from the TV, from the stands, it just looks effortless at times when it's done well. But it's anything but, really. It's become an absolute banker for Britain, hadn't it? Or across the last three Olympics, it becomes such a golden go-to. Well, what makes up the perfect team pursuit rider? Like, if we was trying to assemble legs, cardiovascular head, what sort of person are we putting together? You know, for the team pursuit, you need that raw sort of power. You need to be explosive, get up to speed really fast, but you also need that endurance to to maintain it. It's almost kind of, you need a hybrid of like a a 200 meter runner and a, a 800 meter runner almost. Almost okay, like you might a 400 say four. meter runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a four, they're just sort of in no man's land, aren't they really? You kind of, you need that real explosive 200 meter runner, but then, you know, a hundred meter would be Chris Hoy. That's, that's way too explosive. You can't have that. But then, yeah, the, the back end of the race, 4K is a long way when you go in at 62, 65, whatever they do now, kilometers an hour. So yeah, you need to be explosive. You need to have the endurance to keep going. You need to understand the event. You need to be technically good. I think technique is a massive part of it and riding it well. So when you put all them together, I think you got the perfect rider. And I think our guest reflects all of those points today. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. The GTCC are delighted to be sponsored by our friends at Amp Human. They're dedicated to helping athletes at all levels achieve their potential, even amateurs like me. Amp's flagship product, PR Lotion, is the world's first and only lotion to deliver the natural electrolyte bicarb to the body. Now, gee, this all sounds quite fancy, but you've been using it for, what, a couple of years now? Does it help? Yeah, definitely, and it's not just any old ad this either you know to try and get a bit of cash in to help produce the pod but i genuinely feel like it does help kind of lather it on wherever you want whatever muscles are working so yeah bang it all over my legs for any hard session or uh yeah time trial well there's studies as well that show a 50 percent reduction in muscle soreness when using pr lotion and you can benefit too with 25% off your next purchase using the code GTCC25. That's the letters GTCC and the number 25. Just visit amphuman.com forward slash GTCC and start training with your PR lotion today. So it's time to introduce today's guest. I just gave him the big, big up. It's Ed Clancy. Welcome, mate. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us, talking all sorts team pursuit. Well, yeah, as I was just saying, I'd say you are the ultimate team pursuit rider, would you say? Well, thank you, Geraint. I don't know about that, you know. it's um, I do my best, we'll put it that way. But um, I guess if you're going to judge it on Olympic golds, then yes, we are indeed. So we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that break down then, Ed? Right, If you were to design the perfect lead out man particularly for team pursuit what are you looking for what sort of attributes you know what team pursuit's a funny one like um you know if you're trying to uh trying to put a team sprint together for example 
Basically, you just need the biggest, strongest, most powerful blokes you can get hold of, right? Pure fast twitch, pure sprinters. Think Chris Hoy, think Usain Bolt. That's the sort of person you're looking for. Now, in Team Pursuit, it's a funny one. It's a bit of a middle distance event. So um, you get guys like myself or Stephen Burke, which are sort of, you know, let's to sort of dumb it down, let's pretend you're sort of half and half slow twitch, half fast twitch. And then you get guys like Geraint, Sir Brad, that are predominantly slow twitchers, road riders that kind of adapt themselves to Team Pursuit. Um, so it's a funny one. There is no ideal sort of makeup physically, I wouldn't have said. I think as long as you're up for a fight and uh, you do a bit of specific training, it's hard to rule anybody out. You've got to be quick though, haven't you? There's no way I could step up and do a team pursuit now. I think, uh, as you say, there's specific training and things, but like with you and Stephen Burke, who you mentioned, you can do like 101 for a kilo, one minute, one second from a standing start for one kilometre, which is just... For a kilometre on a track. Yeah, which is just mad fast. Yeah, that's the way it's going. I think almost every team pursuit now could do a, a 101 or 102 kilo, um, which to the road riders out there probably means absolutely nothing. But um, it just means that you've you've got to be quick, even by sort of road standards. <laughs> it's mad. It's mad. But uh, the one thing I don't... Well, I do kind of... I can guess why, but the speed's gone moved on so much since I stopped like in 2012, London 2012. Surely like these guys suddenly aren't putting out 100 watts more than what we were. Mm. or are they or are you no no we're not um, I, th- I just think we were ahead of the game Geraint um, me and you personally obviously <laughs> but also the Great Britain cycling team as a whole <laughs> I think you know we were basically if you look at years gone by 2000 2004 I remember looking at the Australian team pursuit I'd like Brad McGee and the sort of road stars in it and um they were good, but I think the kind of the recipe back then was get try and amass as many good road riders as you could from the same nation, stick them on a track, get them somewhat aero, and and off you go. And I think for a long, long time, you know, that was good enough to go get an Olympic medal or even a, a world championship or Olympic gold medal. But now the game's moved on. Team Pursuit is the best event though on the track, isn't it? Yes, it, yes, it's the Blue Ribbon event. It is Geraint. That's a good observation. <laughs> I, I think it is, you know, from, from a lot of points of view. It's a beautiful thing, you know, when you get it right. It's like a big house of cards and everyone's propping up everyone. And uh, there's no such thing as like a team pursuer anymore. You're, you're man one team pursuer or man two or three or four and everyone brings something different to the party. And the way the sort of turns and the, the, the strategy of the event stacks up, it's like if one person's having a bad day, the whole thing is just a catastrophe and um, hey, we ain't even talking about a top 10 anymore. It's um, you're certainly out of the medals. So I, I don't think there's, I don't know, many sports that kind of everyone's so heavily reliant on everybody else doing a good job. That's the hardest bit of it as well, isn't it? Like you, when you mention man one, two, three, four, man one and man two are the power, the fast, fast twitch guys get up to speed really quickly and then three and four generally are the the more endurance guys and they do the longer longer turns at the end of the race and uh, to get that balance between four guys is is super hard isn't it really it takes a lot of training together and a lot of a lot of drills and everything no yeah big time i think uh, you know it's fair to say but you know particularly in the early days Garrett, when you were around we we started making it look easy but i think uh, the, the thing about team pursuit is that i think 
uh, a lot of people don't get. Like, you know, even your parents and your mum, like, you know, when she's watching on TV at the Olympics, is you don't just rock up and put together one of the world's greatest team pursuits. It's, um, I guess it's the idea that excellence is a habit and not an act. It's like you, you win the team pursuit weeks and months and years in advance, really, just kind of like everyone chipping away um, at their own goals, you know? And then you kind of like, you put it together on the track and then you move away and you do the, do your things on the road and then uh, certain guys go off and ride on the pro sort of scene on the road. Other people go do the crits, other people sit in the gym and then you sort of bring it back together on the track and then you take it apart. And yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of uh, goings on behind the scenes and yeah, yeah. it uh, brings us back around to our starting point that Team Pursuit is indeed the best track event in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember back in the, you know, you're talking about training and all the hard yards. Remember those days in November prior to, obviously, the the following summer where the Olympics were, but some of those drills we were doing, there was this one training session which I absolutely loved and Ed absolutely hated. And it was basically really rubbish, like, equipment, really slow wheels, tiny gear, and we'd have to do, like, 5K at a certain speed. And we'd do about five or six of them, wouldn't we, with not very much rest. And Ed would just be... On the limit from the first effort, basically. Oh, I just hated it, yeah. Hated it, man. I absolutely loved them. <laughs> because then the next day we would do these standing starts, like overgeared then, so massive gear, standing starts, like only like half a lap. Oh, it would take me an eternity to get round. And Ed would just be rolling round on the inside of the track, just laughing at me as I'm going past. Like, I'm barely going past him. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I guess it's, it's just a good example, in it, of horses for courses. And, um, I, yeah, there was rolling 5Ks, G. I used to hate him. It got to the point I didn't even bother having breakfast because I knew I'd puke it up. Uh, yes, Steve Cummins as well. It was like you and Steve Cummins would just roll around taking the piss. And... Um, Oh, I just hated them. It's, to me, it just wasn't team pursuit, you know. We'd just have terrible equipment on, a terrible small gear. And um, uh, if it wasn't for Shane giving me a bollocking at the side of the track, uh, I probably wouldn't have got out of bed to do them. <laughs> they were good, though, when you look back. Because like, when you're on the limit, it was all about being on the limit and still having to make the right decisions, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But, you know, doing shorter turns or longer turns or making sure you get your actual change right. And when he's changed from the front to the back of the the group. And um, yeah, I think that's where you sort of really learned how to team suit properly, no? Yeah, I think so. Um, you sort of alluded to it a bit there, but I think an awful lot about team pursuit is um, making decisions under pressure. And you, you do a lot of training, you know, as we've sort of talked about, and you gather a lot of data and evidence and the smartest people well, supposedly the smartest people in the world sort of come together and you you build a strategy and everyone's got a certain turn length and that's your plan A. But I'd say seven times out of 10, it doesn't go to plan. And, you know, you're just a biological thing. Some people have better days, some people have worse days and it's highly unusual to all get to race day and um, for everyone to deliver what the scientists claim that you're going to have. So inevitably, there's, there's decisions to be made. There's different lengths of turns. Um, do you go half a lap longer? Do you go half a lap shorter? And uh, it doesn't just impact on you and your turn. It ultimately affects you know, other people's rest periods and how far they can go. And it's almost like a bit of a game of chess while you're going absolutely flat out. Well, I, I want to ask a question of you two. It's quite a basic one. But you told me once, Geraint, that Ed... If he's doing the, the first lap, he doesn't go flat out on the first lap. He doesn't go as fast as he could. 
because it would be too fast for the rest of you. Is that right? Oh, 100%. So basically, the best starter generally would go first. So that would be Ed because he can soak up that work. Plus, you have to go to a set set time. So on whatever gear we're using, Ed could potentially do a lap in. I'm going to make a number up now because I can't remember. It was so long ago. But he could potentially do a lap in 17 seconds on that gear. Whereas in the race, he probably only has to go through in 18.5. So Ed can, can, could go a lot, a lot quicker. But then if he did go quicker, he'd just kill all of us as well. So we'd all be on the limit by the time we got to halfway and it'd just be terrible. I think I'd rather be Ed in this scenario because, Ed, you get, you get that sort of feeling of, ah, oh, this is easy. Whereas, whereas G and the others are desperately hanging on. You know what it's like? It's much, much nicer to be chased than <laughs> to do the chasing, isn't it? Like you're laying down the pace for the rest of them. Uh, I guess so. You know, you, when you watch team, team Pursuit on TV, it's kind of easy to imagine that there's, uh, there's just sort of four guys that, you know, get real sort of hyped up and they sort of bang the chest, they get on the start line and they go absolutely flat out from the first rev to the last. But to execute the best Team Pursuit you've got is a bit like walking the tightrope. You know, when I got to hit that first lap split at a 12-3, that means a 12-3, not a 12-2 or a 12-4. It's a 12-3. And the next split's a 7-8, and then it's a 7-2. And then you're consistently knocking out lap splits of 13-8, 13-8, 13-8, 13-8. And if you're 13-7, you know, it's uh, it's easy to think that's a good thing. But uh, like I said, you know, you, you've, you've done a lot of data gathering in training, and you kind of know that, if you do, if you go a tenth or two too quick early on, that's going to bite you in the ass later on, and you're going to pay for that and more. So it's a little bit like walking. A t- There's so much feel and sort of pace judgment uh, involved in the first half. It's different when you get to your last turn because you know it's just sort of teeth out. Everyone's going flat out at that point. But you know, really, for the first uh, two or three k, don't get me wrong, you're trying hard and you're going for it. But there's always that element of sort of you know feel and control, and it's not about doing doing the first two kilometers as fast as you can, or even the first three or three and a half kilometers as fast as you can. You know, the the team that wins is the one that gets to four k faster than the rest. And I don't know if you ever saw the uh, the Olympic final from Rio. It was a great example of that. You know, unfortunately Geraint wasn't there, but you'd have loved it, G man. It was an absolute uh, fight to end all fights. You know, from from the first lap to um, say like three and a half kilometers in we were losing you know we were behind the Australians they clearly went out to put pressure on us and that's exactly what they did and you know they made mistakes we made mistakes it was scrappy you know both teams were scrappy and it was um, a great example of how not to do a team pursuit and uh, (laughs) I mean like we honestly thought we were going to lose that but it all just changed around the last two laps you know just those guys going just a tiny bit too fast early on sort of bit them and um, yeah that was the difference I think yeah, Ed, I was going to say, that reminds me, well, that's two things, actually. First thing, Paul Manning, who me and Ed rode with in Beijing, Tom, when we won gold medal, he always used to tell, well, mainly me, really, and Ed, but don't go chasing the pain, it'll come, you know, because it's, it's easy to just, like Ed was saying, get on the front and just go 100%, and before you know it, you, you're gone, you're out of the arse, and, you know, there's still four four laps to go. So that's the main thing with Team Pursuit is the control, but what I was going to ask then as well, talking about Rio, did, because when I used to race, we never really used to look at the other team. So did you know that, like, were you walking the Aussies? Like, because generally, Tom, if the guy on the side of the track, he's standing on the finish line, 
If he walks towards you... Your coach. Your coach, yeah. If he walks towards you one pace, that's one-tenth down. If he walks away from you, like from the line, that's one-tenth up. So that's how you know the speed you go in. And generally, you've done so much training by then, you know the, how it feels anyway, the cadence. So in Rio, Ed, obviously you can't see the other team if it's close because you literally have to look the other side of the track, which is a bit dodgy. Was the coach walking your pace or was he like showing you how far down you were on the Aussies? This is a good question. The coach, as always, was walking our pace. And uh, in theory, that's the right thing to do. However, pretty much straight away, but certainly after a kilometre or two, I knew that, A, we were way up on our pace. Every time we'd seen the coach, we knew we were doing well. We were two tenths up, three tenths up every lap. But B, I also knew we were losing and the Australians were doing something special. I knew that because every time we went past the British section of the crowd, it was deathly silent, not a peep. So um, I had a funny, yeah, like I said, I knew we were down, but I also knew we were way up on our schedule. And, you know, when you kind of put two and two together, you can be pretty sure that the other team's going to park pretty badly later on and they're going to suffer for that that start being whatever they were, two or three seconds up on world record pace. But um, it's hard to think that, though, when you're, if balls are on the line, it's Olympic final and you're suffering and you're thinking, geez, we've gone fast and these guys are even going quicker. You know what? It, these are one of them times that like the, the old sort of wise words of Steve Peters comes to save you. It's like everything about you wants to just panic and smash the pedals as hard as you can. But there's that sort of voice of reason sort of saying, you know what? Let's not get, let your emotions get the best of your intelligence. You know, it's all right to be two tenths up on pace, but no more. Yeah. And they'll crack eventually. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, you're already two tenths up. There's, <laughs> you don't want to be going any quicker because basically the the coach as well was he. He must have been walking your the quickest time you could do. No, yeah, he wouldn't have been conservative. No, no, it, the days of sort of Beijing and things like that, winning by three or four seconds, G man had gone by then. And uh, you know, we knew we were up for a, a scrap with the Aussies in the final, no matter what. Um, and we kind of we knew from qualifying the semi-finals, I guess our perceived effort following the semi-finals just a couple of hours prior that we didn't have an awful lot more in the tank as a team and uh, yeah we knew we were up on you know what the masterminds had deciphered this is the fastest way to go from A and B and we were up on that so um, we were already pushing our luck so yeah it was critical that we didn't panic and um, you know go full throttle 2k in. So how do you work out the length of turns then? Let's say you've got a set idea before it all goes crazy and it all changes. In the, Let's take that your lineup from the 2012 Olympics. So it's you two and it's Pete Kennick and it's Stephen Burke. What was the plan at the start of that and what's it based on? It sounds boring. I can't even remember the plan. Yeah, I, I remember my plan was, uh, <laughs> I think I had a lap and three quarter start, a lap and then a lap and a half so those were my turns. I'm guessing, uh, Geraint, you'd, you'd had food poison or something. Geraint had saved his worst ever form for the for the Olympic final, <laughs> his <laughs> <Yeah>. home Olympic final. <laughs> so um, I can't remember what your strategy was, Geraint, but I remember uh, near the end of the final... Just try and finish. Y- yeah. No, it, it, <laughs> in all seriousness, you, you were in quite a bad way. And I remember rooming with you that week. You know, bearing in mind, this is your home Olympic final and... Uh, you know, Geraint's usually quite a positive bloke and you know he's always you know fairly confident no matter what you know what he's thinking and feeling and you know what the results would suggest but 
yeah, that week he was unusually quiet and uh, I knew he was in a bad way. But uh, to answer your question, Tom, like it didn't go to plan. You know, I, I think um, between Geraint and Pete, we probably lost a lap of distance and uh, it usually it sort of falls on man one because you start first, you've done, everyone's done their sort of three uh, structured turns at that point and uh, unluckily for me, I got to stick my nose in the wind for a forced time and just rock around to the finish. But you know, we had enough of a gap that it didn't matter at the time, but yeah, it was, it was it was a fortunate situation, I guess. Yeah, Tom, as 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 Ed said earlier about everyone sort of a house of cards, it's that it's that thing, you know. I wasn't one hundred percent. Suddenly, I was supposed to do a lap and a half, and I only did a lap, so that meant Ed's expecting to do three turns. Suddenly, he hits the front for a fourth time, and he's already you know completely spent. He's he's given his one hundred percent, and now he's back on the front again, and and that's when the team pursuit is is savage. Really, there's no. There's no hiding, is there, like, at all, really? Oh, it's a terrible place to be. When you sort of hit the front for an unscheduled turn. I mean, in that instance, in London 2012, we kind of got away with it. Um, I think we were sort of close enough to the team in front that we had a decent draft. And uh, to be honest, I felt unusually good that week. But um, there's been plenty of times I've hit the front for an unscheduled turn, like the Holden World Championships of 2016. And, uh, yeah, lost it for everyone. (laughs) It does happen. I remember when I lost it for the team as well. My very first team pursuit, I think it was in Bordeaux. Is two thousand six. Yeah, and I was um I was actually in third position, man three, which technically really should have been four, so I had a bit more of time to get into the race and sort of you know, when you're man four, you, you you're on the back a lot longer before your first turn, so you kinda of feel it a bit and you kinda of get into it and it's easier to sort of judge, I guess. But anyway, I was three. And I did my last turn with three quarters of a lap to go changed and somebody had, had bailed so we were down to three guys and I knew but oh, you train so much for four guys and then suddenly you swung up and I was like oh man like I knew straight away that I'd gone too high and so I dived back down to the bottom of the track and there was a bike length between me and the guy in front of me so I didn't land right on the wheel where obviously this the easiest because there's no wind and uh, oh, I was just like for three quarters of a lap, just chasing, 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 just could not close this gap. It didn't get any bigger than a bike length, but I just stayed there all the way through to the finish. And we lost by 0.004 of a second, which obviously if I was on the wheel, if I was that bike length further up the track, we would have won a gold medal at the world. So yeah, we've all been there, Ed. You can't communicate with each other either, can you? At that point, you can't shout at each other. So if one of you's... Let's say you, G, you're having a bad time of it and you can only do, I don't know, three quarters of a lap or a half lap rather than a lap. Does everyone else just have to guess? Is it just a, when you swing up the track early, is that just a complete shock to everyone else? Yeah, it is a shock. Well, you'd like it to be a shock because you don't want the speed to change. Basically, a team pursuit is you want to hit, for argument's sake, 60k an hour and it needs to be 60k an hour once you get to that speed all the way through to the finish. So... If you are struggling and you're supposed to do a lap and a half and you do a lap, as long as it stays at 60, fine, that's perfect. But if you go to do a lap and a half and the speed drops to 58, to get it back up is just so hard and, and the knock-on effect to the team then is, is massive. So yeah, if somebody's really tying up on the front, it's just change, get out of there, swing off the front. Generally, they they probably know, but you just shout change just to reinforce the fact that, yeah, you are going slower than you should do, mate, and uh, just get out of there. Um the only time you actually communicate is when you go down to three and then suddenly the guy who's actually bailing, who's get who's not going to get back in the race, 
he'll shout three as loud as he can. Look at the guys just like three, you know, like as you're swinging up the track. The coach will be shouting three probably. Even in the line then, you shout to each other, three, three, three. And um, hopefully everyone knows. But sometimes in something like a Team Pursuit final, the noise has just been insane really. And um, it is hard. This hold, which is basically to stop someone accelerating. We thought slow was probably a bit too negative and you might actually slow down too much. So hold is just, yeah, stop accelerating. Squeeze, which, yeah, obvious reasons is more of a squeeze rather than up because someone like Ed or Berkey who are naturally punchy and fast twitch they could just a couple of revolutions and they're it's up a kilometre an hour so like uh, like I was shouting at you in the final in Beijing when you just hit the front and just had this um, amount I don't know what you're doing for the first <laughs> first three and a half K yeah. it was like you know it just sort of blended in nicely the last two K uh, sorry last two laps the G-man at the front and just rolled me off the wheel. <laughs> so I was shouting, like, you know, if, if I'd have lost the wheel properly, as soon as you're in the wind, you're just like a kite, you know, after your last turn. So I was screaming, hold. He didn't listen, but... That's definitely my favourite. That's my favourite team pursuit ever. <laughs> I felt so good that that last turn. I felt like I still had... I felt so fresh. We could see the Danes. It was Olympic final in Beijing, first Olympics. Could see the Danes and I was like, right... I'm coming for you. And even if Ed, even if I ride Ed off the wheel, it doesn't matter because we're that far up. We're not going to lose. Right, cheers, G-Man. I'm going to make Ed suffer here and just went. Oh, it was Do great. you remember the uh, the team meeting we had with Shane right before we got on the bikes? <laughs> uh, I think I do, yeah. I, I remember. I'll tell the story then. So we were all sat down there and we had a decent margin over the Danes. You know, it's our first Olympic gold medal. And, you know, Shane had done the maths and he was like, right, if you do a 40-0, 14-0, that'll get you the win. So, you know, we do the 40 knows and uh, we're all sat in our circle and we're sort of like nodding agreement. Paul Manning says, yep, sounds like a sensible idea. I'm like, yep, let's do that. And uh, Brad was like, yeah, 40 no sounds all right. And then G's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, Shane walks off. Two seconds later, G looks at the group and says, nah, we'll, we'll do 13 eights. So, and that was it. <laughs> no, no, nobody agreed with him, but um, yeah, that's, that's what we did. And uh, We did yeah, it though, didn't we? we? Yes, yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing like taking a massive risk, massive unnecessary risk in your first Olympic final. <laughs> how hard is it to sw- when you're talking about swinging up, G, and swinging back onto someone's wheel? How hard is that to do? Because from the outside, when the team pursuit looks beautiful, those are the moments when it looks like almost like a mad Victorian clockwork toy because you're all identically dressed and it looks like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's just the way you go whoop up and then whoop back down. It almost looks like you're not in control of it, like you're just something other, some other force is putting you on someone's wheel. It is almost, as Steve Peters would say, it's like your computer, your automatic sort of autopilot takes over almost because you've done it so much. The main thing is, as we'd always say, is keep the pressure on. Like just because you swing off doesn't mean you stop pedaling. You still want to be putting out the same power as when you're on the front really and then up the track and then you dive back down and you know because that arc gives the team time to ride underneath you and then boom you plant yourself on that that back wheel and I think it's just just repeating it and doing it so often that it just does become just second nature like that it's funny almost like you get like a sixth sense you spend so much time with the guys you can almost sort of preempt when someone's going to tie up a little bit when they're going into the turn and little things like um I remember when Brad was tired it didn't happen very often but when Brad was tired, he just he'd aim for the black line down the straights, 
And when Geraint was tired, he used to shuffle back in his chair. And uh, when Berkey was tired, he used to sort of like zig down, sorry, zigzag a little bit down the straights. And yeah, you almost get to the point where, um, you know, at that point in the race, there's no point in shouting squeeze or anything like that at him because you know they're going flat out. But like Geraint said, I think it just comes from an automated part of your brain eventually, yeah. Oh, Ed, that reminds me actually. Remember London World Cup? Uh, 2012. 2012. Uh, It must have been February before the Olympics. And uh, yeah, Berkey did that exact thing. Parked up, pulled the parachute, handbrake, whatever you want to call it. Suddenly just slowed up right in front of us. And when you're that far from the wheel in front, you're kind of either slightly above or slightly below. If you're slightly above, you're kind of okay because you can go right. You've got the whole track to sort of scrub your speed off, really. You go a long way around the track, all this. If you go underneath, it's very limited space because you're already on the black line. You're almost off the track. You can't go off the track. You need the banking to get around. So knowing my luck, I was slightly on the left. I tried to kick back, um, basically meaning you put a bit of backwards pressure on a track bike because if the back wheel's going round, your pedals are going round on a track bike. So instead of pedaling normally, you kind of put a bit of back pressure and that slows you down. Anyway, I'm frantically trying to scrub some speed off, kick back a bit. End up hitting Pete, who's in front of me. So my front wheel is leaning on his back wheel. I'm, all my body weight's going right. And basically, I just need to get my front wheel out. Otherwise, I'm just going to fall over the top of his bike, basically. Managed to free myself, just about. But then obviously, my body weight, my angle of my body, everything's leaning right. It basically slingshots me right up to the top of the track. I can high-five the guys in the front row of the stand we come round into the home straight I'm the top of the track Berkey who obviously is just tied up he's he's got nothing left he's swung out like the start of the straight which very rarely happens anyway he's middle of the track and then you've got Pete on the black line a bike length gap and then Ed so if you're in the stand you must be thinking what the hell is going on here like bodies everywhere anyway by the time we get into the next banking I've come down the track back onto Ed's wheel Ed's closed that gap to Pete and the three of us are back in formation and as if nothing went wrong basically and but safe to say we didn't win we were second by quite a fair margin but that's what gave us a kick up the arse and a run into uh, the Olympics it was just absolute carnage that whole ride I remember it, it was such a shambles of that home world cup and uh, yeah honestly he must have been at 45 degrees when Garrett just sort of like I could smell it before I, I kind of I could even see what was going on. Garrett must have been rubbing Berkey's wheel, like you said, from sort of mid-banking all the way down the straight. And then, you know, there's that point where, like, your weight's on the right-hand side of your bike, and to sort of correct it, you need to turn right. But obviously he couldn't because he was stuck on the left of him. And then he, he sort of projected out to the right-hand side with such velocity, I was 100% sure he was going to be sitting in the stands next time I came round. But, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, th- I thought I was as well, to be fair. Oh, yeah. I Somehow we finished it. And- I'll have to show you the picture, Tom. <laughs> oh. oh, we can stick that on the Instagram feed as well, can't we, for the show? For sure, yeah. So do you have to get on with everyone in a team pursuit? Because you, you two are very tight. I remember you telling me, G, that in 2012, you spent more time in the same bedroom with Ed as you, as you did with Sai, your, your, uh, your wife-to-be. But do you have to all get on? Can you, have, can you ride a really good team pursuit if there's one idiots and everyone else hates that one rider if they're an amazing powerful rider i don't think you do have to get on um 
it certainly helps a lot because like you say you spend so much time with each other you just hope you're not rooming with that guy but I think we have been lucky that generally we do all get on there's obviously the odd sort of spat and stuff but I think that's it's healthy to just get it out as well but yeah there's never been a massive sort of rift in the team or anything there's obviously the biggest thing like I guess Ed is when it comes to selection and somebody it ends up everyone knows you know you know when you're riding around you're doing all the training you know who is between there's like oh it's this guy and that guy it was never me and Ed because we were always in the team <laughs> but <laughs> yeah but um, those were the days. Yeah, that's when the biggest. Who was it in 2012? Was it Andy Tennant in 2012? Was he the next man? Would he yeah, be the next he man? Was on? F- fifth man in 2012, um, and in 2016, yeah, yeah. That's hard because he doesn't get to go on the podium. He's done all the training. Yeah, he, it, ugh, I mean, you'd have to speak to Andy about it, but f- for sure, I, it was a hit for him at the time, and uh, particularly in 2012, because I mean, in 2016, he was a little bit removed from the situation. He was he was the fifth man, but essentially. Because the, the team numbers have been cut b- back by that point. He never actually travelled to the event. So he was there in Newport with us. He got the suitcase, got the jersey, and then sort of went home. And that was that. But in 2012, he literally had to go, uh, you know, warm up in the pits next to me, Geraint, Pete and Berkey. And, uh, you know, we're still good friends. Essentially had to go watch four of his best mates go win an Olympic gold medal in front of a home crowd. And, you know, he... Um, he, he put on a brave face and he was a good teammate through all of it, but uh, man, he, he, he won't, it's, well, I'm sure it's not the easiest place to be. And the thing is, you need five guys, 100% you need five guys like in training because someone's always up with someone and um, just to do all the efforts that everyone needs, you need that extra guy. Plus if, for me, for instance, if whatever I got before London had developed further and had become worse, then Andy for sure would have had to step up into the team. So, um, yeah, it's just tough when that guy goes through all those final sort of preparation and, and, and doesn't get a ride. But that's professional sport, really, isn't it? And that's it's cutthroat at times. So there's, there's one thing we've got to talk about. There's one thing that I've always wondered. So this is, uh, and this always gets talked about with Team Pursuit, with uh, track cycling at an Olympics, and that's equipment. So if I give you a theoretical situation, if... The GB, if your GB quartet in Beijing and in London had had the, the kit of the French team and the French team had had the GB kit, who's winning? Oh, we are every time. Yeah? Yeah, because... What about if the Aussies had your kit and you had the Aussie kit? We'd beat them. Well, I don't know. I'm getting a bit bullish now. But I think <laughs> the thing is, in Melbourne World Championships, which were March before London 2012... We went there with our standard kit, or not even, it was just terrible kit, no, Ed? It was our training skin suits. We had helmets that even had little cracks in them. They had, like, air vents in them. They were just bog standard kit, and the Aussies had their full Olympic kit out. And we ended up winning that that World Championships by, I think, less than a tenth of a second. And that's where we won the Olympics. We won them back in March on that day, for sure, because they knew as well. They knew we had all this fast kit to come, and they had their best stuff and we put them away in their own backyard. High Saints, High Saints Arena in Melbourne. <laughs> and uh, that's what they always used to ask us, didn't they? We were out on the road. Yeah. Hey boys, are you racing the High Saints, High Saints Arena? We had no idea what it meant, but yeah. <laughs> Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, put them away. And I think, yeah, that's 
I honestly believe that's where we uh, we won the Olympics that day. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you know certainly in Beijing and London, um, I think we were the best team, irrelevant a kit, and uh, I, I definitely think it's fair to say that GB had a head start on all that stuff. But I don't think that advantage exists whatsoever these days. Ed, that's been fantastic. I can see why Geraint wanted you as his roommate. I was going to ask you for some stories from his stag do, but we'll save those for another time because I'm sure some of those aren't suitable for a family podcast. Ed didn't even come on it. Oh, yeah. That's how I've met such a good <laughs> mate he is. Yeah. On that bo- and on that bombshell. <laughs> hey, I was there at your wedding. We'll I did the real work. <laughs> the wedding when he cried all the time. That's the one, yeah. He did some good hey, rapping, though, hey. at the end. What was that song you were rapping away with, with Zah? Uh, that yeah, M- she was she was rapping. I I was doing Rihanna bit. Yeah, mm, yeah, the Eminem and Rihanna. What's yeah. it called? The name of that song? Love the way Love you lie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was a good night. It wasn't even planned, that was it? G. It was just freestyled. No, of course. By then, That's how we roll in it? We were very, very drunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Ed. Aye. Tom, I've got one very important question for you here, Bob Swift. Have you been wearing your GTCC jersey in-game? Have I ever? <laughs> We've not waited all these months, all these weeks, for me then to stick with the new, usual one. And I think, G, I've got to say, even as someone who had a very, very, very small hand in its development, it looks quite the part. It does. Fair play. So if you fancy giving Swift a go and getting your hands on our virtual GTCC jersey, just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial and also you can join our club ride every Wednesday at 6pm in your brand new jersey everyone's welcome so G we like to give all club members of the GTCC a proper look at what really goes on in the pro world but we also like to try and pull a few tips don't we out of our particular topic something that we can all learn from those of us who just ride at weekends or ride for fun things we can learn so what are the lessons from a team pursuit I think um, to be honest it's probably harder as an amateur club to get a good team pursuit together than it is at the top of a you know Olympics because everyone there is you know at the same sort of level whereas in an amateur team it can be such a vast difference in ability so no egos throw your leave your egos at the door that's the biggest thing I could say and it's all about speed you just want to well try to figure out the optimum speed basically for your third guy realistically because he's the one that or she is the one that the time's going to be on you just want to ride at that pace so if you can ride that pace for six laps do that if you can ride that pace for half a lap do that so it's all about speed and momentum and no egos but twice is technically pretty hard to do have you ever done one tom no i have ridden the velodrome but i haven't done i was trying to do fastest lap and stuff like that i've never done a team pursuit i'm pretty sure it would end in carnage the first time yeah, I think it would. I think they'd be a lot of shouting, get off my wheel. Never know, maybe the GTCC could have a team pursuit team at some point. Oh, now we're talking. That would be interesting. L- listen, listen, if it's you and me, um, don't expect any turns because I'm going to be sitting on your wheel probably for the first lap before you drop me. And then, <laughs> and then when you lap me, I'll try and get back on your wheel briefly. Well, to be <laughs> fair, that probably would be the quickest way. Just You just get on my wheel and I'll just do 16 laps and then we'll finish. Yeah, and I'll just keep shouting. Let's be honest, as soon as I swing up, we're going to swing down. We're going to slow down. Yeah, we are, yeah. Tom, so is that time again. Any other business? There's not that many left in Series 1 now, but 
surely there's a few more committee positions available. Yeah, very much so. We've got an application here for our regional social secretary. Jake Down wants to put his name forward for the Dutch or Amsterdam representative. Jake's a keen amateur rider, and get this, G, he wants to show us around Amsterdam's cycle route or its bars. Apparently it's our choice. Oh, nice. What do you reckon, cycle route or bar? Um, well, let's be honest, I'm not going to go there to train, so it's going to have to be bars, <laughs> isn't it? But I have been to Amsterdam once, actually, with Saar. Mate, it's mental, the, the roads, like, let alone yeah. the bars and stuff. But, you know, because there's all the cycle lanes, so you're crossing the road, and obviously if you're from the UK, it's the other way. Um, fortunately I was kind of used to that anyway living abroad but yeah then you got this cycle path where you know the bikes are take priority over everything I think and then there's trams and oh mate especially if you're a bit like hungover it is lethal absolutely lethal I agree but uh I like that I like that idea because as we all know as well bars in Amsterdam can quite easily um well go into somewhere you think's a bar and it's not a bar (laughs) but you know (laughs) It's all an experience, isn't it? (laughs) Next up, we've got Matt Hickman, who would like to be our honorary physiologist. He's doing a sports and exercise physiology master's at St. Mary's University, and he's also a keen triathlete. He says, perhaps I could make some training suggestions or help answer some questions. Yeah, I think that's great, Matt. Just, uh, I think, just go onto the GTCC Facebook group, maybe set up a thread and go from there. Yeah, like it. On another note, Ed Fenton has got in touch to say he's found the perfect vintage road bike for our highly anticipated head-to-head race in the south of France, G, where I get your or Richie Port's Pinarello and you get some old bike. Now, Ed has sent us a photo of this. It's actually far too nice a bike for, I think, what I need to make this challenge fair. It's a 1982 Peugeot PH12 which, I'm told, was one of the first road bikes to feature integrated tube cabling. Ed says it's aerodynamic tubing, but made of steel, so nice and heavy for G. Also got very fetching pink bar tape. Now, that's all great. I don't like the idea of aerodynamic tubing for you. I don't like the idea of integrated tube cabling. What (laughs) I would like is brakes made of cork, um... You can have gears, but it's, it's the sort of gear they had in 1912 where you have to take the other sprocket and a spanner and change it yourself <laughs> if you actually want to change gear. <laughs> that's that's full on, that is. But that, that sounds very nice bike, actually. I did have a quick Google then. It looks lovely. So, yeah, maybe I could wear my um, Tom Simpson's Peugeot National Champs yeah. jersey while riding it. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Can't turn that down, can we? No. How fat can you get before this challenge, by the way? <laughs> well, it depends when when it is, really. So if it's October, phew, yeah, pretty fat by then, mate. October the 31st it is. <laughs> and finally, Bruce Haxton's got in touch from the mountains of Chiang Mai. Wow, that's in Thailand, isn't it? He says, next month I'm heading out on a 2,300-kilometre solar ride in 20 days to raise funds to feed elephants up here in the mountains who are struggling without tourism. My question to Geraint is this, how best to avoid pain? It's super hot out here at the moment, 38 to 40 degrees centigrade, and saddle sores are never far away. Yeah, I think oh, it's not really the pain you want to worry about, it's the temperatures there. Like I think um, the main thing is you want to be hydrated, drink, 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 and that's and just keep drinking, basically. 
start fully hydrated, obviously. That's key. Um, and then, yeah, drink as much as you can on the bike because 38, 40 degrees, especially if it's humid, you know, it's they're the worst conditions. So um, drink as much as you can. And, yeah, hopefully you got a lot of support out there with you to uh, keep feeding you then. But um, saddle sores and stuff, phew, like I say, it's the least of your worries if you're dehydrated and, you know, curling over the handlebars anyway. But, um, yeah, good on you. Enjoy and uh, good luck. There is obviously, I suppose, you could the option of chamois cream. You can use chamois cream maybe at the start of a ride on your chamois to help keep saddle sores at bay. And then some old pros would tell you that there is a certain cream that some people have in their medicine cabinets anyway, which helps with saddle sores. And there's no nice way of putting this, but if you do struggle with hemorrhoids, then apparently exactly the same cream works on saddle sores. Really? I didn't know that. Obviously, I've got no personal experience of this. I've just been told by people <laughs> that my work. Oh, okay. Of hemorrhoids or of saddle sores? Both. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to our Amsterdam Social Secretary, Jake Down, and our honorary physiologist, Matt Hickman. Thanks to our head of social media, Fionn Clark, our head of music, Emma Hickman, our treasurer, Diane Barker, and our honorary president, Mike Carr. And of course, as always, most of all, to you, our fellow members, for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. <laughs>